Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. All right, we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm one-time Oscars fan, Louis Fertel. I am now an Oscars survivor, Louis Fertel. <laughs> um, uh, well, let me tell you something about the Oscars. This year was the first Black Oscars in a lot of ways. Oh. So um, we had to, of course, bring Damon Young on the show to guest co-host with us. Hi, Jay. <laughs> and and you know, I was I was scheduled to co-host before before the Oscars. Um, all of a sudden turned into the Source Awards. So again, um, it's just very, <laughs> very advantageous, very, very serendipitous that you know that the schedules worked out where I'm here two days after the slap her around the world. See, that is an appropriate um descriptor, by the way. The the, calling it the Source Awards. I would say that the immediate way to tell if white people were racist online, if they were writing, this felt like the BT Awards. And I'm like, the BT Awards don't have fighting at them. The Source Awards, however, plenty of fights. Yeah. And also, we can make that joke. Like, I, I get yeah. there's so, and, that, and that's one of the beauties of, 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 of being black in america and, and also consuming a thing like this is that there's just a wider range of jokes that we are able to tell and, and this is this is why this is I, i'm writing a book about this about why black american humor is the best american humor is because we just have more material and we're also allowed to access all of the material right so another book already Slow down, David. I mean, it's been it's been, been <laughs> R.L. Stein it's over been, here. It's been three. It's been three years. You know, it's been three years. I gotta. You see this exposed piping in the background. I gotta pay for that somehow. So I gotta. I gotta keep churning. I gotta keep churning them out. Now, uh, is anybody concerned with the phraseology, the slap heard around the world that we are erasing Stephen and Irene from the real world Seattle? Hmm. You know I, what? I, this is that. That's a good question because that that was a serious slap. That um, and also a more traditional slap in that, like you know, like a quote unquote bitch slap. Whereas what actually, obviously, we'll get into this in a second. It's what the whole episode will obviously end up being about. But what Will Smith did, it it it, it is a slap, but the impact was more than a slap. So it's almost like we need to coin something new for whatever it was. Yeah, this is this is almost like a. Like a hyper slap, um, yes. Um, mm. Because it, uh, and and again, there, there's also, and again, just going back to you know, like even jokes and permissions and all of the weird nebulous politics that exists around that. I, I think that when you have male on male violence like that, there is a wider range of things to talk about, or there's a wider range of things to joke about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, this is. Funnier yes. than the real world slap mm -hmm. because it was a black yes. man slapping a woman. White woman, is she white? I think yes, she's white. Right. White, mm -hmm. white yeah. and white and annoying. Um for the for, <laughs> just to get that out of the way. She was annoying back then. She's less annoying now. I will say that the real world slap 
offered a lot more twists and turns because the whole slap was because she kept referring to him as gay. And he was like, I'm not gay. Then he slapped her. And then, what, 20 years later, when, like, the big real-world reunion aired with all of the cities on MTV, he was there with his partner because, of course, he was gay. (laughs) And she was right. <laughs> Maybe you know. I, I think sometimes people, you know, they 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 you know they say you know I'm going to slap the gay out of you. Maybe she. Maybe this the gay was slapped into him when he when he did that. Like uh, I don't know. It's like a reverse exorcism. Now you're filled yeah. with the gay. Now spirit. you're filled yeah, with the right, gay uh-huh. after you commit after you commit the act of violence. So mm-hmm. so you know. Good for him. All right. Well, we've we've got plenty of. Oscars to talk about. Um, Damon is here, so we're also going to talk about um, this piece that you wrote on Jack Harlow, who I love. Um, but we'll get into that. Jack Harlow starring in a reboot of White Men Can't Jump, which also ties back into the Oscars because they celebrated the anniversary of it for some damn reason. Uh, we'll get into <laughs> all of that. It's going to be a whole oscars episode and then also lewis and i have a convo with the wonderful judith light this episode as well oh my god and does she bring it she goes 150 miles an hour and we are you know panting as we try to keep up with her she's faster than the speed of the slab actually so there's a a lot there's a lot going on hey the speed of (laughs) judith light oh my god right there (laughs) Listen to this copy editor writing this rad headline right there. <laughs> All right, we will be back with more keyboard. Check out the latest episode of Offline with YouTube Sensation and former late night host Lily Singh. This week, she joins John to talk about what being on Late Night meant to her, why she decided to delete social media off her phone, and how she learned to be alone with her thoughts. New episodes of Offline drop every Sunday wherever you get your podcasts. That is if you want to listen to John Favreau on another podcast. Can't relate. Well, we thought maybe after weeks of discussing the Oscars, we could move on now that they're over, but... And Will Smith slapped that possibility away. And I want to first bring up two things addressed to Lewis. One, maybe this is your fault because (laughs) a friend of mine, my friend Tom, was sending me a text about how he was catching up on last week's Keep It. And he said Uh when we were discussing um, our picks for who was going to win, you said of the five lead actor nominees – who slapped? Whoa. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't claim psychic abilities, but Spoken. I'm happy to you own it now. It. You manifested the yeah. You You manifested it. Um, and two, Lewis, have you ever been slapped before? Good question. Well, let me tell you something. About 10 years ago, I did a little bit with my only very close friends where if they said something even remotely quote unquote, offensive to me, I would jokingly slap them. I remember our friend Tony said uh, that Meryl Streep had been nominated for She-Devil. Well, guess what came out? My hand. And uh, so that was like a bit I did for a second. And guess what? That bit is also, people get over it really quickly. So I moved, <laughs> moved on from it. But I have I ever been slapped? Maybe, maybe in a play I did? I yeah. vaguely remember this bit. 
I do remember I was never slapped. No, that's that's true. You weren't. <laughs> no, I, you know what? I I don't know that I've been slapped. I don't think so. Mm, no one slapped you in retaliation to your bit. <laughs> no, oh, you are correct. My friend uh, Morgan Polakoff did because he said I was from Joliet, Illinois. Not true. I'm from Lamont, and I uh, got I got I got a little uh, uh, palm happy, uh, shall we say? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and see, Damon, that is the difference between the races. You know, um, I don't I don't playfully slap my friends because I would have gotten knocked out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I um, I don't, you know, what, what what's your name from the world world say? I don't wrestle. I, I beat bitches up, and that's that. I don't, I don't, I don't fight. Like I haven't been in an actual fight since I was like thirteen years old, right? Like an actual fist fight. Now I've been in basketball related mm. scuffles and elbows thrown and shit talk, but actual like we're squaring up, we're fighting. That hasn't happened mm. in a long time because, and I feel like most people exist on opposite ends of the fighting spectrum where like either you've been in 29 fights since you were a kid Mm -hmm. or and you just fought in a costco's parking lot like last weekend or you've been in zero like no one has been in like three fights (laughs) um and, and, and 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 so so yeah i mean the slapping is just not a thing that is a part of my life i don't play slap i don't get play slapped um i did get a a a drink thrown very viciously in my direction and not like thrown but like the drink was like shoved into my chest by someone who was unhappy with a decision that i made but in terms of the actual you know a face a a hand hitting my face an open hand hitting my face that yeah that it's been i'd have to go back to like my mom maybe hitting me um and my mom didn't hit me frequently but she did once when i was like 11. All right, and that's mm. yeah. Getting yeah. a drink pushed on you though—that's an appropriation of the television series Smash Culture, which uh, we can unpack that later. Uh, specifically, <laughs> what's Eileen Rand, Angelica Houston's character? <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, I would say the same. Uh, this, fighting used to be a part of my life in the sense that I went to public school in Milwaukee. Uh, and so I definitely saw, you know, like you, you would step onto the playground and there'd be morning fights, you know? So I am used to it in that respect. And I, but I don't think I've been in a fight fight since I was younger. I mean, most fights, arguments that I've been in have stayed, you know, sort of verbal in my adult life, mostly because, and this is a thing that the Will Smith slap brought up on Twitter, um, which was fair. A lot of people, one, act like they have never been around violence in their lives. Um, which, you know, if, if you're white saying this, um, I know at least two of your cousins um, fought with somebody at a store because they had to put on a mask. So you know people who get <laughs> violent uh, regularly. You've seen white people be violent on planes. You've seen white dads get like kicked out of their kids' um, sports games. Like it is, it is a thing that happens. So pretending it was like the most shocking thing you've ever seen in the world was really something. But I think also people in this Twitter age, tweet such reckless things at each other or about people, and there isn't that threat of violence. And so 
that's why it was sort of shocking to them. Like, I've run into people, Lewis, you know, at like Akbar, who might have like tweeted something crazy at me, you know? There's no expectation on their part, though, that I'm going to hit them in the face because they did that, even though they probably deserve it. And if you did that, they would never do it again. Well, I will say, I think what is shocking about this slap, other than, I mean, nobody expected to see it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm certain Nicole Kidman did not expect to be five feet from a slap, for example. Um, to me, what was surprising was you only realized in retrospect it happened. Because to me, the, the crazy thing about it was he was out of his chair so fast. It was, it was like Robin Williams doing a bit at the Oscars where you're like, oh, this person's animated and they're like friends. Like obviously Will Smith and uh, Chris Rock know each other. So to only realize afterwards that it had happened while w- Will Smith was doing the yelling, that to me is the shocking thing. Because you can see it even registering on, I think, Lupita Nyong'o's face. Who, she thought it was I a joke. She, I think she thinks it's a joke. Yeah. That's and what then people are her face yeah. slowly starts to go to, oh, yeah. I like when things started cutting out, I had no idea what was really happening. And then the anger in his voice when he said, keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth is when I knew it was real. And I do want (laughs) to point out that I immediately knew that this was personal um, from Jada's face at the G.I. Jane joke, which was one ad-libbed has been proven that it was it felt ad-libbed anyway but it's been proven it was ad-libbed but two if we go back to 2016 and this is my actual main problem with the with the whole fight in general and why i'm actually angrier at chris rock uh in this situation is in 2016 when he hosted the oscars he that was when Jada and Will were sitting out the Oscars, the concussion year um, for the, you know, Oscars So White campaign. Mm-hmm. And he was making jokes online about Jada staying at home. Like, how are you going to protest something that you're not even invited to? Making jokes about a black woman not being invited to the Oscars in a room full of white people who then laughed about it. People who were like her peers, people who were Will's peers. And I found that embarrassing on his part, and rude that he would do that to her. Um, Full disclosure, I wrote an article about that for MTV News in 2016, and then Jada did send me flowers. Oh, okay. She did, yeah. It, It was a lazy, hacky joke. Right. And, 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 and also not just the fact that, you know, he, he has this ad lib joke about Jada Pinkett Smith. I mean, he, he, okay. So you're Chris Rock, you're in this, you're hosting, you're one of the presenters for the Oscars. There are, what are there, what, 4,000 people there. I don't know how many people are in the theater. Jada Pinkett Smith is probably the 117th most famous person there. Right now. She is, she is more black people famous than she is mainstream famous. She, she has a name. Right. And so when you are hosting a thing like that, you if you're going to talk shit about people, you go at the super duper stars. You mm. know what I mean? You don't just. It, it, it. And, and, and I feel like that is the part that um, I haven't seen discussed that much. It's like. You know, the other people who, you know, who Amy Schumer and um, who else? Uh, it was Wanda Sykes and, and Regina, um, Hall. Regina Hall. Uh, mm-hmm. Regina Hall. We're, we're going at were like Sandra Bullock, okay, Harvey Bardem, um, you know, people who are nominated, people who are superstars, right? Mm-hmm. And and again, I think that, you know, Chris saw Jada, 
It was an easy, hacky, lazy joke to make. You know what I mean? And and I think that, you know, just getting back to our reaction to that. And I had a really awkward experience of 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 of, of witnessing it because I was watching the Oscars live. But we, I had put it on pause for something. My wife and I were talking about something. We just put it on pause. So we were about two minutes behind. And mm. so I'm mm. watching, you know, I'm watching Chris Rock start his monologue. We're about to start his monologue. Um, and people are texting me like, what the fuck does that? Like, I, I my phone <laughs> felt like my phone felt like a Cheesecake Factory buzzer when you're, when you're, <laughs> right. And, and then, you know, I'm like, holy shit, something is about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then I see the slap. And I think that one of the things that made it so jarring is that, you know, Chris Rock's reaction, because, mm-hmm. you know, even when we, when we slow it down and we watch like the Sapruder, you know, Chinese films of it right now, his expression doesn't change until mm-hmm. like the minute millisecond before he is slapped. There's no recognition of, oh, this six foot three, 220 pound man is approaching me about to do violence. Like there's none of that in him. He is, it, it's almost like he is still in a, he thinks it's a bit. And I think we took his cue from mm-hmm. that and was like, okay, this must be, oh, wait, what? And then to Chris Rock's credit, this dude has the strongest chin. <laughs> like I, I, I want to have a love as strong as Chris Rock's chin because again, he, how was he not played Batman truly the chin yeah. that was like it, it took so much yeah he got he got hit very hard and he he took a step back and then went right back into doing his job he didn't mm, say he didn't even right. say ow he didn't touch his face he didn't do anything like that he just went right back he was like will smith just slapped the shit out of me right he he did not register any pain he went into just pure shock and then i think was waiting for teleprompter feed to just get to the award Mm. which finally happened and Mm. then he uh, delivered the best documentary thing and by the way i just want to say quest love gave such a great speech after that and that was so (laughs) props to him for like remembering what he was going to say and i feel like someone Uh, someone like him with a mouth like his and his size is used to being slapped like I, mm-hmm. I, and so he he reacted like someone like ah yeah this is, this is happening again <laughs> I've been i know i will <laughs> again i will say that <laughs> i will say that largely my anger goes back to i mean people kept sharing that clip after this uh that we talked about before on the show where um there he's chris rock is talking about the n-word with um jerry seinfeld and ricky gervais and louis ck and mm-hmm. it's like just sit, like laughing while the awful people in the clip um <laughs> say the n-word and jerry Seinfeld's just sort of like i've never found the humor in it and yeah. i don't w- ever want to yeah you know and it's it's just that it 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 um they he and will are sort of like rich black people from the same coin you know they're like going towards this big success in these white fields and it's sort of like changed how they interact with each other and where their egos were coming from because you were right picking on jada who was like the like 117th most famous person in that room right then and i, and I was wasn't wild saying that. and i want to say real quick i wasn't saying that to shade jada pinkett smith at, no at no I, I get that no, she's fan, I, but you know in, yeah. in that room in that in that car, yes you know in that I mean? room um 
it was wild to do that. It it actually would have been wild even if she were one of the more fake if even if she were like in that room like the 15th most famous only mm-hmm. because she is the wife of a nominee and she's coming to support yeah. her husband and you know it's like you wouldn't make a joke dragging Rita Wilson being like you could make jokes about Rita Wilson showing up to the opening of an envelope, you know, because that's what she does. Mm-hmm. She's got to be everywhere. Um, but I just think that that compounded with how he dogged her out in front of white people in 2016. It was just sort of like enough is enough. And him like being like Jada, I love you at the beginning of it was him trying to soften the blow of the joke. But I get from their perspective, why do you have to keep dragging us in front of these white people when your job is to actually be here and drag the white people like why won't drag you drag them, them? Yeah. Also, also if he wanted us on his side or specifically if he wanted me on his side to start that bit he should not have referred to penelope cruz simply as javier bardem's wife already that set me off on a oh you can't even say penelope cruz's name like right grim and then secondly when by the time he gets to jada pinkett smith Here's the th- as we discussed, whatever he said was probably ad libbed. But like, I feel like the minute he directs his attention that way, Jada Pinkett is already bracing herself for oh, here comes a dismissive joke that's probably look looks based. And I think in hearing people talk about how she how she didn't react, I don't know properly to the joke or didn't react with a smile. It's like one, you do not have to find every joke funny. I actually find it pretty radical to just sit there and be like, I'm not going to even give you a smile. Uh-huh. But second of all, it's like I think there's such a thing as being cliche to the point of nauseating like oh a woman doesn't have hair and what like cultural references do we have for that just gi jane and sinead o'connor and they're both ancient references and you made one of them and you're deemed a comedic genius most of the time and now we're doing that again while you make the most cliched possible joke gi jane he could have like the nigga couldn't have made a black panther joke she looks like a koye Uh, yeah (laughs) come on yeah, though, I, and then of course, like Will Smith, like sprung into action once he saw the look on Jada Pinkett's face, and that that again was confusing for the audience because we didn't see that moment of recognition either. So it, it was only a minute or so later that we realized what really happened. But like, there's just something about the dismissiveness of that kind of looks based joke where. I'm happy we had a moment to realize actually that was that was worse than you thought it was. You know, yeah. I think it's a joke that would have just passed with like a a couple of giggles from somewhere in the crowd otherwise. But I, mm-hmm. I, I sort of like that there was a reckoning that that sucked even more than the average person would say it did. Yeah. It, I mean, and you know, like Ira was saying, it, it, it's the context, you know, where, you know, he had done this before he had done this in front of, you know, in this white, in this, you know, extremely like ultra Vanta white um, space before is, you know, will feeling, you know, th- this was like the third or fourth joke about mm. them yeah at night mm. and and i'm and i'm sure he you know he they're on twitter they're on ig the same way we all are and mm. you know all the jokes about entanglement and in august mm-hmm. and and their relationship and and all the memes of his face and then he has the whole thing with his weight loss journey that was kind of awkward and then um that that piece that wesley lowry wrote for gq where mm-hmm. you know it, it's it was really you know revealing and and some things yeah uh, you know Maybe he, he's crazy a bit. Some things that were uh, somewhat unflattering, too. Yeah. So you have all of this, right? All of this building up. And then he just tells this throwaway joke. And and yeah, I mean, I I, I don't I don't think he should have 
did that, but I get it. I get why he did. Like, I get why he did. I kept thinking about, like, if Wendy Williams was still on the air or something, like, Wendy Williams would have, I think, I think Wendy would have agreed with the hit and been like, <laughs> come on, Will, you should have done that outside. <laughs> you know what? Like, the slap should have came, the slap should have actually came at the, before they went into Beyonce and Jay-Z's party. Not on stage. I still think a slap was uh, was owed, to be honest. I just don't think he should have done it there. Mostly because now we still have to endure these dumbass conversations about, you know, like, respectability politics. And, like, you got friends, t- like, black people talking about black-on-black crime, light-skinned black people, who I know, um, <laughs> and I need to block from my phone. Um, and, um, you know, it's 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 all very exhausting, but it does make sense in the narrative that we were talking about when we first talked about Will's memoir on the show, Lewis. You know, like, he talked about how, you know, like, he felt paralyzed by, like, his mom's abuse and like he wanted to kill his dad and i'm just like a man like if if this were a film we would have seen this moment coming you know it's it's almost like the joker right, you right, know it's right, like he's right. going to snap yeah. at a certain point and kill someone in defense of um a woman you know because he could have killed chris rock as judd apatow said <laughs> and and i guess my, my response to that too is you know is was it about defending Jada's honor or was it about his own ego? It was about his ego. It was definitely his ego. You know, um, because it didn't, you know, when you, like, as you were alluding to, you know, he, he, and he had his big speech about how he's a protector and how he, you know, that's his, that's why he's put on earth to do. But now before it was just jokes that they got, now they're getting scrutinized microscope, Looking at the relationship, mm. people speculating about whether he's actually abusive, physically abusive to her. Mm-hmm. So it it actually made them more of a target, made her more of a target. Yeah, you know than yeah. anything. You know, yeah. Talk about it's, how they filmed him during that speech. It was like something out of Nightcrawler. The close up they chose, <laughs> like, I was like, like fully underneath him, like going up. It was it was like uh, breaking local news or something. I, I it was very. Uh, it was confrontationally intense. filmed in a way that, like, say, Jessica Chastain was not filmed. Yeah. I saw um, nostril here. I definitely saw <laughs> nostril here. Um, we saw snot. We saw yeah. tears. Mm-hmm. It was... Anyway, yeah, it's it's wild that it took this long for people to start talking about misogyny and Chris Rock in the same conversation, but now women online are doing it. Um, and, you know... Shout out to the alopecia community because, you know, they are rising up as well this week. So also, I, I was going to say about the alopecia thing, people keep saying, well, Chris Rock clearly didn't know she had a medical condition. And my response to that, or I, I think the response to that is, well, now he does, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, what's the correct way? Oh, he should have been briefed about that, like by gen- gently by Will Smith. It's like, not really. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that was the Will Smith portion of the Oscars. Um, <laughs> I truly thought we were going to come out of that Oscars being like, oh, that great speech Troy Kotzer made or like Yunya Jung introducing him. It's like now that is so beyond trivia. No one remembers that. It's so shocking how it wiped the entire preceding two and a half hours away. I've never seen anything in an award show like that before. Yeah. It was so sweet, by the way, how she uh, like signed Troy's name before oh. he won. 
Um, or I think she said love, maybe. Or oh, maybe yeah. she said dry. I, I, yeah. I can't read sign language. You know. <laughs> I, I noticed. I noticed. I, yeah. I, I had to give. I had to give my, myself um, some recognition really quickly too, because I, I watched this live. I mm. saw the the Moonlight La La Land thing live. I saw mm-hmm. the Janet Super Bowl live, and I saw the Malice at the Palace. You know, in the Joy Pistons in the Atlanta in the Indiana mm-hmm. Pacers got to the fight with the. I watched. I was watching that game live, and so there there, there can't be more than seven hundred people on Earth. Who could say that they were watching all four of those things exactly when it happened? So again, mm. I, I I have to acknowledge myself here. Oh, good. And give congrats, and give congrats to you. Kennedy Center honors forthcoming. Yes, I, I, just, I just had to say that. All right, we're going to take a brief break from the Oscars, and Lewis and I are going to chat with the fantastic to the light, and then after that, Damon joins us again for more Oscars. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today is honestly a legend, uh, three-time Tony winner, who also happens to have two Emmys. We're talking soap star, sitcom star, Broadway star, and HIV/AIDS activist. Please welcome the Judith Light. My goodness, that was quite the intro. Thank you so much. I mean, you've done so much, and <laughs> you also have done so much for. Truly us. When, when I talk about remembering um, your work, this is maybe going to come as a shock. I used to watch SoapNet after school in high school. You know, that's how I would catch up on like 90210 and Melrose Place. But I also means that I have seen um, you on One Life to Live multiple times. My goodness. Uh, and, and of course, they air your iconic courtroom scene as Karen Wolek 
all the time. They used to air it all the time when I was in school. So um, that was sort of my introduction to your greatness as an actress. Uh, Thank you. What a lovely, lovely thing to say. I was going to say you were probably way too little to see it when it first came out, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but definitely um, my... um, grandmother who introduced me to soap operas like was familiar with your character and didn't everybody's I... grandmother i mean my grandmother yeah. was devoted <laughs> to the soaps. my mother was devoted <laughs> to the soaps no i still uh-huh. have all the the vhs recordings that my mother made oh wow okay I, I've got so to did, do your, did your mom her. record them for like when you were on was it exciting for her for you to be on one life to live oh it was it was an absolute thrill it was <laughs> look she got to see me practically every day which she didn't in real life so she got to see me do that so that that was that was helpful for her so yes is being on a soap opera like a sort of acting military like do you come out of it like utterly primed for anything thrown your way? Because I imagine you just show up at a soap opera set and they're like, well, today, I don't know, like your twin is going to eat you or whatever's going to happen. <laughs> and and you just have to accept it. So what what is it like coming off a of soap? Do you feel prepared for everything? What did you say? Acting military? Yes. Is that what you said? That is the most articulate um, sense of, it's the best articulation of the experience. But it's not like, you know, your twin's going to eat you that day, you know, in advance. And you've got to, you know, you really have to recognize and give props and kudos to the to the writers on soaps. They're writing an hour of programming every single day. So you know what the storyline is that's coming. You know if you have 60 pages to learn from the night before. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, I, I was one of those people who didn't know how to read the teleprompter. I couldn't do the teleprompter, you know, even though it was going, I would be like, and so, Jimmy, what? what? And, and I would forget the line. And so I would, ha- <laughs> I, I just couldn't do it. So I had to memorize everything. So yes, what it does is it prepares you to be able to jump into something very quickly. It gives you a sense of being able to um, do cold readings or auditions quickly. Um, It gives you a sense of um, the kind of substance that you have to bring to the soap so that it isn't just this superficial thing, but that it's filled with an emotional life that you have to find your way to. Um, and, And so I would say it was the Probably after Carnegie uh, Tech, after after Carnegie Mellon University uh, and training there, it was probably the best training that I ever, ever had. I mean, repertory theater is another thing, but this is really about how do you jump on board? How, how do you get on the train quickly? And also, you have to be careful that you don't create a bunch of habits that you're going to have to undo afterwards. And that's really, that's really hard and, and daunting to do and challenging as well. And then I, I really was very um, disdainful of doing a soap. And then I watched one day and I saw what everybody was doing and I was just overcome. I was in awe of the work that they did. So it's perfect mm-hmm. articulation. Well, you were also from the era, too, where, you know, like I felt like they <laughs> the network still paid money for soaps, you know, and you like they put care and effort into storylines. I mean, yours in particular was, um, you know, something that hadn't really been seen on daytime before. Well, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what they yeah. did was they asked me about this story when I took over for somebody. She had been ill and they said, if you did this part, what would you do? And I think they were looking 
to to recast it um, because she'd not been well. And they asked me what I thought of the storyline of the movie with Catherine Deneuve, Belle de Jour. Oof. That's where they mm. took that story. Uh, mm. And I said, oh, I think that's absolutely genius. And so we talked a lot about that. So, yes, they took a lot of care with it. And it was a very it was a storyline that transversed uh, like a year and a half. And involved mm-hmm. everybody in the town. So, yes, they were they were very careful with it and they were very diligent about it. And you talk about having to do a lot of work. One hour of programming a day is a lot for a network, for the showrunners, for the directors, for the actors. It's a lot. If, if I may, you're, you remind me of someone like Cloris Leachman and that there is just something sporadically creative about you. Even as I sit here talking to you, you're just like inspired and going and not stopping and not having to think twice. And it's so rad to see. And it makes me wonder, based on all of your roles, which, by the way, none of them have anything in common on stage, on TV, whatever. And you're like an utter chameleon. What is like a what kind of role have you done that actually threw you that made you think like I need an extra week to even figure out how the fuck I'm going to approach this? I love that. you guys. You're both really adorable. I, you know, I, I don't know if I if I say yes to something, I know that I, I, I can do it, and I have to do it in a particular amount of time, mm. because that's only respectful to your fellow, uh, to your fellow folk. You 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 don't you don't say, hey, you know, like I'd like to have a pina colada and sit around and think about this. <laughs> you don't have time to do that. And thank you for the. Thank you for the Cloris Leachman um, reference. Uh, I just, I really thought her talent was so um, extraordinary, yeah. really extraordinary. And I don't know that she ever got the kind of acknowledgement that w- really was due her. I mean, if you go back and watch Last Picture Show, again, it is a classic performance that still holds up over over time. Um, I, I, my my energy is um, about, for, for me, be it's about and it's the same thing that when i'm doing my work that it's the the level of aliveness that comes when we're when i'm engaged with people who are interesting and asking great questions and so that brings the aliveness and the energy up for me I'm not always like this. So it has a lot to do with who you both are and the way you're the way you ask questions and the way you're operating. So for me, I don't I don't spend time if I if I'm gonna take something on, I don't say I need another week. Yeah. I'm never mm. I, I never would do that. Look, I mean, over time what happens is like when I was doing Other Desert Cities, that brilliant play by John Robin Bates. When I was doing that and Joe Mantello was directing it and I took over for Linda Lavin when it can't went to Broadway. We worked on that over over time. I only had nine performances, I mean, nine rehearsals before I had to go into performance. So mm. Joe, Joe Mantello said to me, "You've who is it? like a genius. And Joe said to me, you know your lines. Just know your lines. Don't learn anything emotionally. And I remember him coming to me in the middle of the run because Joe would come back and like give notes. He gave me a note in the middle of the run that changed everything for an opening monologue. So there's always with the theater, you always have that kind of ongoing um, level of creative activity. Mm. Um, this new project that um, you're in that's going to be debuting is uh, Julia, uh, which is, of course, based on Julia Child. And it's created by Daniel Goldfarb, um, who was 
I I met, was able to meet him um, when I went to Tisch. Uh, he wasn't one of my professors, unfortunately, um, but I did know Daniel Goldfarb back at NYU. Um, and your character uh, of Blanche Knopf, um, who is, you know, a publishing giant, first of all, is a character who could have her own series uh, just in knowing her work, you know, like she didn't just do um, the art of French cooking, um, you know, she's, she's famously, you know, like published um, what a Baldwin's novels, you know, and he like famously hated her edits because uh, she tried to make them more um, palatable to, um, you know, Americans uh, and globally just like not as um, sort of coarse uh, language that he had in his books. And I think he like rejected having her publish Giovanni's Room because of that. But what sort of research did you do into Blanche or were you already familiar with her? I was uh, not, not (laughs) familiar with her at all. Um, The, there's a book called The Lady in the Borzoi, which is uh, which is the real which is the book that I used for most of my research. Uh, it's a really detailed uh, account about Blanche, and I was mispronouncing her name. I had to go back and do looping. To ch- I was saying Knopf, and it's Knopf mm. apparently, which is oh wow, a hard, <laughs> way worse pronunciation. Yeah. I but you know, huh. they're, they're having like, to say that every day at work, you know, that they're not going to listen to me. But, uh, but uh, when I, I was really shocked, Daniel Goldfarb is just extraordinary. And so is my friend, Chris Kaiser, who is also the other creator of the show. And of course, having a playwright like Daniel getting to write for television and Chris, you know, these people come from the theater and they're the depth of their writing. And not to say that anybody who write who doesn't come from the theater isn't, isn't substantive and terrific. They happen to be together a really great team. I didn't know about Blanche Knopf and I was shocked to find out all the details of her life. And yes, I agree with you. She could have her own series, um, her own, her own story, because this is a woman who, really didn't want to do uh, Julia Child's cookbooks. She gave it off. She mm-hmm. passed it off to the, the genius editor, uh, Judith Jones. And what she did was when, in 1919, when she married Albert Knopf, Alfred Knopf, he said to her, we'll do this together. We'll, we'll be the team and we'll, you know, enter into this publishing empire. He basically shoved her to the side. And at the fifth anniversary of Knopf publishing, he was like, never really acknowledged her. And it was at that period of time when women were not acknowledged. She was the the face of women in publishing at that time. She was extraordinary. And she and Alfred had a very contentious relationship. They were, uh, it is said that he was abusive to her on many different ways, many different levels. And the irony, the tragedy of her was that as she went along in life, and people I think do know this about her, she started to go blind. Her Mm. whole life was about reading and finding these people. And, you know, I mean, you know, you can understand how Jimmy Baldwin related to her because she was really Mm. impossible and tough. And, um, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Giovanni's Room, we can do a whole other podcast on. I mean, just I (laughs) I am I am a devotee of 
James Baldwin. So, I mean, there's that, you know, but, but Blanche was quite, quite an extraordinary human being. Now, this is one of those TV shows where I'm scrolling down the cast list and I'm just letting out yelps at the people who appear like, oh, my God, B.B. Newworth. Oh, Isabella Rossellini. Like, it's painful to read all these wonderful names. Do you have David Hyde Pierce? David Hyde Pierce. Yes. Another Tony winner. Um, Uh, Fran Kranz. I mean, you got I mean, you got people in there. Yes. You got got some you got some folks. Do you have just favorite kind of kindred spirit actors who are your friends who kind of, I don't know, approach the work the same way you do, do have the same vigor about it that you do? I imagine in Broadway, there's a ton of people like this, but. Of course, of course. I mean, you know, there's lots and lots of people. David and I haven't gotten to work together on this show yet. Um, But, you know, it's like, I have this, you know, people always say, how do you have chemistry with somebody? It's like, you make your chemistry with somebody. If somebody works a particular way, I work to work the way that they do so that we have a mutuality of flow between us, among us. So I don't seek out somebody. There are some people who naturally we we work similarly and it just, you know, there's that ease and that, you know, that that language that you have that's instantaneous. But it's not always the case. And you have to be flexible and you have to find um, the people. Look, there are people who have tremendous longevity in this business and they do carry the vigor with them. David happened, David I. Pierce happens to be happens to be one of them. And so there, you know, you find them always along the way. And if you stay open, I find if you stay open and flexible and, um, uh, and aware of yourself and your own shortcomings, then all of a sudden you can, you can work with anybody. This is a team sport. This is a, a, a business of service. So you got to put your, you got to put that on out as your, as your context. You just, just have to, I mean, I've just done, I just did a movie with Zach Quinto, um, you know, mm. uh, Zach, oh, down low, which film. is, was, um, it was written um by a friend of ours, Lucas yes. Cage, uh, and Phoebe Fisher. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Come on. <laughs> get, get out of town. I mean, Zach, Zach texted me and he said, you have to do this with us. You have to do this with us. And I said, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I can, I know if I can do this. Um, and he said, you can do this. Just like, you know, come to Oyster Bay, New York, and we'll, we'll, we'll shoot this. And we did. And we had the best time. And that was for Film Nation, for the wonderful Lucas Weiss in Danger who I'm doing another film for um, in Georgia in like, you know, two weeks. So do you know, do you know a, 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 a filmmaker, this young, brilliant African-American filmmaker named Tyresha Poe? I do not no. know. Honeys, you've <laughs> got to look it up. This, okay. Oh my God. This, this, this human is on fire. Oh, she's oh wait, uh, I've seen. I'm looking her up now. I saw um, Sella in the Space. Yes, great, great film. This yes. she was lauded at Sundance. She wrote this new film called The Young White that Kiersey Clemens okay. is in. I mean, it's really, I mean, really special, odd, creative. You know, you talk about you know creative vigor. This is this mm-hmm. is where it is. So you know you you know I get to I get to do things like this with that are really exciting to me. Now wait, J- now Judith, like, do you just have like a, a like I picture a stack of like unread plays and things that you just like <laughs> generally pull from? Are you constantly reading up on what's happening, et cetera? 
Do you mean like, do I read new things? Or I new, read new, new and or? old things. I, I read anything I can get my hands on. And particularly when I'm in the process of creating character, I'm looking at myself. I'm looking at what I have in my life, what I can bring, where I am right now in my life. And also always, always, always historical references, always plays that are old, that are new, that are, you know, seeing something, mm-hmm. um, you know, watching something on, on, television series what whatever it might be that begins to filter you know it's like you you come alive with other people's creativity i think mm-hmm. you there's a there's a spark of their creativity that ignites with the spark of you and i, I was just reading this this book um called the illusion of life and death i think that's pretty what it's called gold um i think her last name is goldsbury and it's like I'm playing this character in Tyresha's film, um, a woman who is has a very complex life, and I won't go into it, but I mean, you know, we can come back and talk to each other again once we know it's going to be coming out. And it's about life and death, and what does that mean? And so when I start to infuse myself with those thoughts, that kind of thinking, and translate it into what Joan Sheckle, who is this genius uh, person who worked with us on creating tra- on on when we were creating our characters on this show that I did for Amazon called Transparent. I don't know if you you ever saw. Oh, it, sure did. Yes. Oh, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, not everybody sees everything, so you know you gotta <laughs> ask. So, um, Joan always talked about taking whatever something was that didn't live in your head only and in your intellect and in your intelligence, but lived in your body and the physicality of the, 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 that, you know, emotion, she said, rides on the blood and the water of the body. And if you can find your way in there, um, with yourself and with other people, all of a sudden you'll begin to have a very different kind of you won't be saying, all right, at this moment, I'm going to do this. And at this moment, I'm going to do that. <laughs> you have this flow that begins to happen in a way that's um, more alive, more, mm. more tactile, more unu- and more unusual. Mm. Great. If I could ask you one last thing, you're so well known for your dramatic roles, but I feel like you also started early on with, you know, you did Who's the Boss, which was, you know, sitcom, and uh, you sort of had to flex your comedic muscles. And then, of course, Ugly Betty, which is an iconic role of yours. How did you find, you know, like comedic timing? Comedic timing is, is like music. You hear it or you don't. Mm. Uh, and when you can have somebody as great with comedy as Tony Danza is that you can learn from and watch and observe. And I had done a bunch of comedies in theater, um, in repertory theater. Cause when I left Carnegie, I went to, I went into repertory theater. And so I did comedies there. Um, you have to hear it. And it's, and if you don't hear it, you'll never, you can never get that timing right. But it is, it really Mm -hmm. is like music. And so I think they knew that I could be funny. I had come from the soap and then I I got the, I got um, the, the, who's the boss. Um, But Tony really was a, a great teacher and a guide for me on, on all of that. But I could, I could hear it before he would say, don't like when the audience would laugh, he would just 
he taught me how to hold for a laugh. So that was something that I really uh, relished and, and cherished. And I love him a lot. So. I think about that moment on sitcoms all the time when, when the audience is laughing and you just have to do something between movement and not saying your next line. That must it would feel incredibly awkward to me, but I guess you just get used to it. You you remember your audience is the other part of your show. It's not, they're not like these foreign things. They're, they're integral to the, to the production, just like the camera is, you know, it's not, it's not an intrusion. It's an inclusion. So when you have that, when you hold it like that, it's a very, it's a very different experience. It's like, oh good, you're participating with us. You're in the show. So it, it, you know, I mean, it could feel awkward for a minute, but not really. Not to me. Uh, over. Not, no, no, not, not really. Um, for some people, I, it, it can be, it can be a challenge and then you learn how to do it. And then, you know, that's what you do. That's part of your job. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Judith, for being here. I mean, it was truly Good an honor. Lord, to I just want to, I just want to like throw my hands up and listen to you all day. My God, you were like a full like Gatorade of endorphins. Are... Yeah. <laughs> you're so you're so darling. I thought this. I thought we would have um, a little bit more time. Did you all want to talk about Shining Veil vale at all? Have you have you heard about that or seen that? Where I play Courtney Cox's yeah. mother and our stars? friend uh, 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 Marin Dungy is on that too. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh-huh. yes, that's yes. right. That's right. Wait uh, till you see this. Julia is brilliant. Wait till you wait, and so is this. This is. I'm so proud to be in both of these shows. I'm telling you, the Courtney Cox and Greg Kinnear. This show is comedy and drama and horror, uh, all rolled into one. And I and they're dealing with a ton of women's issues, and I don't even know how you do that, like menopause and marital sexual relationships and mental illness it's it's a it's a it's a triple somersault so i would um encourage uh, viewing i mean i've i have i have been such a fan of um courtney cox so obviously you know like uh growing up with um friends but also you know scream and then cougar town um like she is she's, she's done so much wait um, wait until you see uh, her in i'm this. so excited she's she's really really different and the only the other thing that I would uh, tell you about is that I was in Savannah, Georgia for a couple of months back last year, and I did a film called The Menu um, mm. that with Ray Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy Ooh. and, um, yeah, and like r- my friend Reed Burney, whose daughter, Gus Burney, is in The Shining Veil, um, and mm. directed by the genius Mark Milad, who directs Succession. Really, mm. r- really interesting piece, something that I think you all are gonna want to see and then i'm producing a bunch of stuff too and producing some stuff my husband yeah imagine if you so. didn't have 90 Love projects that. going on at once i could not be less surprised <laughs> i could not be less su- yeah you're very you're 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 very sweet and i'm really happy to talk to you and thank you for the wonderful questions you guys are really great oh, of course really, of really course great. also by the way yeah you, how's, I mean, Savannah- it, how's the podcast going how's it doing oh we do we, great we do this a good is, job um, don't you worry we, yeah <laughs> no yeah. no no i didn't we start, mean that we, i meant no how, we started in Oh, love good. It. Loving good. It. Yeah. We started this in January of 2018. So, you know, it's been a, and we do it every week. Why don't I know about this? <laughs> I mean, this is like, when they told me about it, I said, 
intersectionality, which is what I loved about, you know, <laughs> pop culture and the world and all of that stuff. And, you know, all of the, you know, the stuff that comes up a lot around the LGBTQ stuff that we, we like mm-hmm. to talk about. So oh, yeah. that's really, important, you know, yeah, uh, we, we yeah. keep it pretty we gay will. here. So don't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> I saw somebody's nails. Pretty, pretty. <laughs> <Mine>, yes. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank oh, you. What a pleasure, Jimmy. Yes. No, come back anytime. Yeah, you want to be the third co-host? Whatever. Thank come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We'd, we'd, we'd love to come back. Thank you so much. Be well. Yes. Stay well, guys. Yeah. Talk to you soon. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. All right, we're back with Damon, and uh, we're going to kick off this combo with another brief moment that happened at the Oscars, which was the 30th anniversary of White Men Can't Jump, um, which is an appropriate anniversary to celebrate because uh, it's 30 years, even though it was weird having the Oscars celebrate White Men Can't Jump during the ceremony, a film that I'm positive was ignored when it came out 30 years ago by the Academy. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's like to, to kind of overcorrect, they celebrated the 28th anniversary of Pulp Fiction. And if someone misses your 28th birthday, right, <laughs> it's not a big deal. Like, in fact, if, if, if a friend, if, if, if one of my friends missed my 28th birthday and it's like, you know what, I had some engagement, I couldn't, I couldn't show up. I'm like, you know what, show up for my 30th, right? Because that's the number that matters. 28 mm-hmm. and all these fucking nebulous ass off-brand numbers that are celebrated as anniversaries, they don't matter. Like, no one gives a <laughs> shit about the 20th anniversary, the 17th anniversary, the 6th anniversary. You keep it 1st, 5th, 10th. 15th, 20th, just factors of five going forward. After number one, you just go by factors of five going forward. Because again, these off-year, off-brand anniversaries just annoy the shit out of me. And I, yeah, I just I just had to say that. Also, I think the thing is, um, everyone has a birthday every single year. Mm-hmm. So it's to quote-unquote celebrate a, a random number is to celebrate nothing. The, simply the way time works. And if they had just said, oh, we're reuniting the cast of Pulp Fiction, that would have been fine. Ooh. But instead, they put this number in front of it, which cheapened the fact that they were there. Even like 15 years for Juno, uh, like it, it was cool to see Elliot Page. But also it's like you, you couldn't get Alice and Janney in there. You know, uh, I, well, I'm I texting mean- Diablo Cody. I'm like, I'm like, look, they just said your name. And then she like <laughs> sprung into action. She's like, what? Yeah. I mean, it was it was extra weird for me to bring the Juno cast out for celebrating judo's screenplay win i was like 
the Oscars really does not give a fuck about screenwriters, do they? I was like, I was expecting Diablo to walk out. <laughs> and she's she's right. famous enough as a writer in her own right that she could have walked out on stage with them and people would have clapped yeah. for her. Mm-hmm. Instead, we got 11 foot four Jennifer Garner lording over the cast of Juno. I didn't realize that J.K. Simmons was apparently like four eight. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Elliot Page is looking good. Mm-hmm. Elliot Page has got a chin, by the way. That's a good jawline. Has a very, <laughs> now you're very fixated. strong, very, very <laughs> Batman, very, very yes. Wayne-esque jawline. Yes, yes. Um, okay. There. Yeah. Let's definitely. get that twist. Okay. Yeah. Let's get that Batman. Um, There's an opening for Robin. That's true. That's true. Right. Is, is there mm-hmm. is there a Rob? I, I haven't seen the Batman yet, but is there a Robin there yet? No, there's not one in this one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There's no. boom. There we go. We just cast it so, in the next Batman. So aside from arbitrary um, anniversaries, um, which feels very much like when I worked at BuzzFeed and they would just be like, we, we need to write about something this week. So I would just look at the ca- calendar and be like, what movies oh, came yeah. out this week? And it doesn't matter what year it is. And so then you're celebrating like, you know, the, the 11th anniversary of 13 going on 30. Like anyone cares. But it's just <laughs> to get people sharing Jennifer Garner clips. Um, Damon, you wrote about White Men Can't Jump, which is being rebooted starring Jack Harlow, um, everyone's new favorite white rapper, at least Kanye's favorite white rapper of the moment. Um yeah. And who's my favorite white rapper, Ira? Uh, that would be uh, Ma- Madonna. 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 That's correct. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> but you wrote about this for the Washington Post uh, because you had some thoughts about how it was miscast. Yeah, I. So I I used to hate just the whole concept of reboots, you know, because mm. uh, I, I it's the whole like nostalgic uncanny valley thing that they have going on it's like why if i want to watch that movie again i will just watch the movie again instead Mm of you know seeing like a a replication of it or seeing an update you know these characters that we fell in love with 30 years ago are now like 60 and that that there's anything wrong with being 60 i hope to be 60 one day also but um, but yeah, I, I'm just, I'm just generally annoyed with the concept of the reboots. And I had to kind of work myself out of that because, um, they bring people joy. Apparently I'm not the audience for them, but someone out there likes these things. So they keep getting made. And someone I likes those damn Disney ones. I have not, mm-hmm. I do not watch the live action Disney ones. I, I, I watched Lion King because of someone's- Beyonce. A billion people. Uh, the Lion King made a billion. So someone, someone watched the live action Lion King. Someone did. So they're rebooting Jack, uh, White Man Can't Jump, which again is a curious movie to reboot. But again, I'm, I'm not going to be mad at it because, you know, all right, whatever. But I read somewhere that they were going to, that they were going to wrap this movie around Jack Harlow. That um, he was going to star in, in, I guess, the Woody Harrelson role in that movie and i am diametrically opposed to this casting and and it's not even because of harlow's acting chops he could be the next brando could be the next daniel day lewis i don't care i don't it's that i saw him play in a celebrity basketball game the all-star celebrity basketball game in in, (laughs) in february and he is a terrible basketball player Mm, and so 
So, and so there's that. It's like if you're going to cast an actor who is supposed to be good enough, who's portray a character who is good enough at basketball that he could game and, and hustle actual ball players, then you should find an actor who is good enough at basketball that they could game and hustle actual ball players. And Jack Harlow runs like Frankenstein. He shoots the basketball like his elbows are made of bacon bits. He dribbles the ball <laughs> like it's like it's like it's he dribbles the ball like it has measles. And again, there's nothing wrong with <laughs> any of that. Measles. Right. There's nothing like if you not everyone's going to be a great basketball player, and that's fine. But it, again, if you are going to be cast as someone who is supposed to be good at basketball, you need to be good at basketball. Right. And also just the casting of athletes in general in old movies is very interesting because it's so the, the amount of editing that has to be done to even make like basic athletic gestures look great mm. is really impressive. I mean, like I, I'm still impressed with and I wish more people talked about the tennis playing in King Richard, like Sanaya Sydney, that girl. I believe she was playing tennis. That was very shocking to me. But anyway, I'll, I'll let you go. No, back no, to no. This is saying. that, that, yeah. that, that yeah. gets to the point. And, and yeah. there, I feel like there are enough actors who are, who can hoop. Like we, um, Woody Harrelson could actually, was actually not bad. So Woody mm-hmm. Harrelson was mm-hmm. actually a decent choice in the original, right? Um, what's he science was terrible. And we'll, we could get into that at another day. Like he, he, he <laughs> Like he played basketball, like he learned how to play basketball by listening to Curtis Blow's basketball. Like he had never watched basketball before in his life. Um, Which is not technically instructions on basketball either. What do you think of Denzel and he got game? Denzel Denzel had a decent old man's game. Okay. And and he's matched up against Ray Allen, who's, you know, obviously a a, NBA star. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that there's a scene and he got game where they play one-on-one at the end of the movie. Right. Um, And, Ray Allen apparently was supposed to beat him, you know, uh, 10 to nothing. But Denzel mm-hmm. actually, like, literally really scored those first two baskets. Um, oh, and damn. he wasn't supposed to in the script, but that wasn't written in. But Denzel actually scored those baskets on Ray Allen. And you could see Ray Allen's face, you know, Jesus Stutterworth's face getting, mm-hmm. like, more and more pissed off because of that. So Denzel can actually hoop a little bit. Um, Rashad okay. Ali played Division One basketball. Um, right. So you could, there are actors who can play basketball. Jason Siegel, um, apparently was known as Dr. Dunk in high school, um, mm. wherever he went to high school. Yeah. Um, and so why find someone who could hoop? Mm-hmm. That, that, I will that is, say, that's, that's my whole thing. I will say the alternate though, is sometimes when you cast a movie with like an athlete and you try to be like, I'm going to get the person who can actually do this role. Sometimes they are an abysmal actor in the case of Steven Soderbergh's Haywire, would he put Gina Carano in that movie? Cause she was an <laughs> MMA fighter. First of all, she cannot act. And then two mm-hmm. during the pandemic revealed herself as like an anti-vax MAGA demon. So Thank you for that, Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> she was, of course, on the American Gladiators reboot in 2008 with Layla Ali, where she played a gladiator named, I believe, Crush. And that was exactly the acting zone for her, where it was mostly about flexing <laughs> your muscles and being near a wall. Yeah. Yeah. Ronda Rousey was in, I think, Fast 6 or Furious 7. Mm. One of those. She was, she was good. Yeah, and she, and, she, was, she, I, and again, she wasn't, she was in a role where she didn't have to have that much range where, you know, we just need you to get your ass kicked, you know, for about five minutes and then and, and you'll be, and then glower 
you know, at the screen a, a little bit and maybe flex <laughs> and then you'll be off screen. And so again, she, she, I believe, was in the Entourage movie, too, where I want to say she did OK. Ronda Rousey, weird pop cultural moment that sort of it, just it went was. away. But anyway, she, yeah, the Entourage like, movie was also a good film. I I laughed unfortunately, and you know <laughs> I'll say at that television show, not my brand. So. so the sweet spot. So instead of getting athletes, you know, who are trying to act, or actors who are not athletic, or you just find the actors who are athletic, mm. and there are enough act there are, there are enough actors who have you know, who, who are decent at basketball, decent at football, or played baseball in high school, that you could cast in these roles instead of trying to shoehorn, you know, someone with a nice curl pattern in um, just because of, you know, their re- their current relevance. That's fair. Did you know that Jason Sudeikis was on his high school basketball team? I, I did not know that, but that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Could, LeBron okay. James and Trainwreck, like that was up, an A-minus yeah. performance. LeBron wasn't bad. I'm looking up celebs who yeah. like have played basketball now. So. LeBron was not bad in, um, in Trainwreck. LeBron was not bad. He was and, and actually like, he, so he, funny in Trainwreck yeah. that I mm-hmm. was yeah. shocked that he was so awful in Space Jam 2. Right. I like him as sort of a featured player in a movie. Like, don't like rest the movie on. Mind you, I haven't watched Michael Jordan in Space Jam recently. I wonder how that holds up because he absolutely terrible. What's interesting about him when he was in um, uh, like Haynes commercials, he had like a stodgy delivery that worked for him. Like you you believed him spouting a tagline or something. But then if that turned into, shall we say, a powerful monologue in a movie, maybe that would be worse. He wasn't he he was he hosted SNL. Um, and there's only yes. one skit that I remember, the Stuart Smiley um, skit, and he was very funny. He, he was great in that. And yeah. his deadpan, you know, I'm six foot six, two hundred twenty pound <laughs> delivery actually was perfect um, for that for, for that skit. So yes, I remember Stuart Smiley saying, "Do you ever just get up and think I can't play basketball today?" It was so good. <laughs> they tried turning that into a movie, which was of course abysmal. But man, that's like a great. I think the top tier of '90s SNL sketches. I mean, speaking of sketches and then basketball, I mean, maybe it doesn't need to go beyond the Dave Chappelle sketch, um, Prince playing basketball, but I do think that basketball should play heavily in a Prince biopic whenever we get one. And I would love to find the person who could play Prince and could also play basketball well. That's a tough, that's, that's going to be tough to find, to find someone who is able to, that I, I guess that um, I don't know that overlap of, of was, yeah you have to be teensy and agile so teensy, and agile, Janelle Monae play basketball someone androgynous and also really great at basketball. <laughs> Wait, what did you Can say? Janelle Monae play basketball? Because if Janelle Monae could play basketball, I'd be mm, here for I, like an I'm not there kind of. Mm, okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> I want to say she's tall though. Am I wrong? I don't no, think she's Janelle is very short. Too short. Oh, is she? Yeah. Didn't know. Yeah. yeah. She's like, yeah, I would she's think like she's slightly like five taller one. than Quinta. Five two. Wow. All right. It, with our with our Kylie's and our uh Shakira's, those people. Mm. Yeah, she's five foot. Yeah, so oh. shout out, by the way, to one of my favorite basketball performances. And by that I mean the rare case of a queer person being uh cast as a somewhat superstar athlete in Jane Fonda's first movie, Anthony Perkins was uh, played a basketball player. It's called tall story. 
He is all elbows. There is he's. I mean, I understand that among like athletes, basketball players are gangly. Excuse me. This person is just a a, a heap and pile of joints running around that court with his like cute gayish sneer. Check it out. I, I will do that. I, I try to catalog all of the basketball movies. Um, I try to watch them and I assess them. You know, one for you know artistic you know rigor, but also just for basketball. And whether the mm-hmm. basketball is realistic, and of the ones that I've seen, the the most the best basketball in in movies, number one is Above the Rim, mm-hmm. um, because you had actors who could actually play. Dwayne Martin was actually, I think, actually played in college. Um, now we we have to admit, you know, that they played on eight foot rims too. So some of the dunks that they were doing were just, you know, just not possible for people that size. Um, but again, Above the Rim was number one. Number two is actually a, a pretty, you know, surprising choice, and that's Finding Forrester. Oh, my gosh. I haven't seen that since it come out. Yeah. Wait, I love Finding Forrester, and I just, I just, I, I rewatched Finding Forrester um, a year ago for some mm-hmm. reason, um, mostly because uh, I had forgotten that Gus Van Sant directed this film, and mm-hmm. I was like, it's probably much better than I remember, and I watched it. And it is a really good movie that is that was marred in pop culture by the you're the man now dog line. <laughs> like, that's why people sort of remember it being done. Basically. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Rob okay. and Rob Brown, I think is his name. Rob Brown. They, mm-hmm. they cast him basically because he could hoop. They just saw him as they want him to be an extra. Because they saw him and his boys playing basketball, and then they're like, "Well, you're you're charismatic, you're tall, you're handsome. Why don't you want to be the lead in this?" I think that's how the story went. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he is actually good, and they casted you know young actors around him to you know in these basketball scenes, guys who actually knew how to play or conceivably be high school basketball players. So so again, finding Forrester and a butter rim, and then a, a, a huge drop off. Huge, tremendous drop off to um, White Man Can't Jump. Mm. I saw Hoosiers for the first time recently. Do you know what surprises me about that movie? Or I guess shouldn't surprise me. It is exactly the template of a basketball movie. As in, there's not one added thing that makes it like different. We're like, oh, and, and there's a woman who does something interesting. No, it's just down the line. We end on this moment with this game, <laughs> etc. It's It's so shocking. But um, uh, the acting, of course, is Dennis Hopper. I think we were talking about him in regards to Apocalypse Now a few weeks ago. He does bring it. I'm, you know, uh, I'm. I hope that you know maybe for White Man Can't Jump, they make the first basketball movie with no basketball played in it. That would be radical. Just have mm. the just have <laughs> basketball looted to. Just have them sitting on the sidelines. Have them in a locker room. Have them on the bleachers. That's kind of what the movie Moneyball <laughs> was. Actually, you know, like, show the basketball. Right. The mm. movie Moneyball was sort of like the idea of baseball is happening off screen somewhere. Here we are in a darkened gray room talking about what should be occurring in baseball, but we're not going to make it up. We're not going to show you it. Mm-hmm. Um, so to close out, I will I will see what Damon's opinion of my two of my favorite basketball films, um, not serious basketball films, but Teen Wolf mm. <laughs> and Just Right. Yeah, see, I so with just right, okay. Um, I, I've never been able to get into that movie because be, specifically because Common is supposed to be not just 
a basketball player, not just an NBA player, but an NBA star. Right. He's also supposed and, to be an actor, and he has never proven he has never pro- he has never proven this in any film. Uh, despite the fact that I like him on camera, <laughs> your camera. I feel like Coleman has found a little niche as like being a hitman who dies eventually. He is great um, in the John Wick done films. That like five times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I I just I I can't suspend I can't suspend my 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 belief enough. Um, for that movie to work for me because common is just not not good enough at basketball um mm-hmm. for it and it just yeah it that that takes me out of the whole movie now team wolf is different because again he's he's a he's a team werewolf okay so, <laughs> <laughs> says right in the title so, so so you're you're you know you're you know the belief is suspended already that you have a team werewolf in high school and this is and, it, and it's not even like a big deal Right. Isn't mm-hmm. that the biggest story in the world? Right. It's just like a local, you know, oh, this this team just has a lot of hair and he's a werewolf and he could jump really high. But like the, the entire universe is just shut down to focus on this high school. Um, I, I, yeah, no one had no one had a 1985 the, the way Michael J. Fox had a 1985 yeah. Teen Wolf uh, Family Ties and Back to the Future. He, I mean, yeah. Michael J. Fox, he had a goat year, you know, then. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst, though, I, I'll, I'll just leave with this. The worst ever basketball depiction in a movie that I've seen is American History X. Um, and there's mm. a scene There's a scene when the, the Aryans, the white supremacists led by, um, what's his name, um, Edward Norton's character, mm. they challenge the, the black, they challenge the, the, a, a bunch of uh, black people at a playground to play, you know, five on five. And it's like, whoever wins, gets to rule the playground and the in the park in the area. And the white supremacists win. But anyway, the game ends with Edward Norton's character doing a double punt reverse dunk. Okay. Like an NBA contest level dunk. Right. Yeah, rock and jock basketball. Yes, star. Right. <laughs> NBA jam rock like boom boom dunking it and they win and they tell they niggers get the fuck off the court and and again it's this it's a moment <laughs> that that did not need to exist okay the, the rest of the movie whatever but they could have taken that scene that that scene should have been left in drafts you know the wildest thing about american history x is sam rockwell must have seen that movie and been like that's the role i want to play in every movie <laughs> he's like how can i turn this into a track yeah, that i ride uh all right when we're back it's time for keep it and we are back with our favorite segment of the episode it's keep it Damon, you're our guest of honor, so why don't you go first? Yeah, so, you know, as we know, you know, there is a book ban um, epidemic that is going across the country right now. School board members, parents, politicians are trying to ban anything that 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 tries to subvert or, or counter or contradict their own notions of white supremacy, you know. Um, and, it, and a lot of it's usual suspects. I mean, you have, you know, Tony Morrison's The Bluest Eye, Alice Walker's um, The Color Purple, but also some contemporaries, too, 
Um, friends of mine, KSA Layman's heavy has been banned a lot. Um, Nicole Hannah Jones, the sixteen nineteen project is you know is is like I feel like they all have that her picture on like dartboards in her house right now. George Johnston, all boys are I think it's all boys are blue. Ijoma Lou's book, uh, Ibram Kendi. So you you just go down the line, down the line, and at this point, there's going to be nothing left um, to read except for Tom Clancy and like the label on a bottle of Dr. Bronner's peppermint soap. Um, that's all that's <laughs> going to be left in schools. And so that's not even, but that's not even my gripe. That's not even my issue. My issue is that my book, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker, came out three years ago. Okay, the first six pages alone, I talk about naked white people. I have multiple slurs. I talk shit about Tom Cruise. I talk about the the, the link between masturbation and prayer. And yet my book still has not been banned. That fucking sucks. It's, I really have to say I'm with you on this one. Right. And and so my I, I have book ban FOMO. And my whole thing is like, what do I have to do? You know, is my book not radical enough? Is my book not black enough for these motherfuckers to to ban it? And and so going through this in my head and this is a real thing too like i'm not joking i want my book to be banned like you know i have a couple of books that are in the works right now and forget about pre-orders i want to i want you all, everyone listening to sign a petition to pre-ban my book but um <laughs> I, I feel like this is just more proof that these books aren't actually getting read right Where they're not these the, yeah the books that are banned you know it's like okay i saw i saw an excerpt or i heard a thing or this thing, I, someone read it, someone else read it, and it made me feel a certain way. And so we must ban it from our district. We must ban it from these curriculums. We must go out and burn them. And again, I just, it sucks that my book isn't one of those books being banned. But again, it just helps to expose the ridiculousness of this whole epidemic of banning and burning and trying to just, you know, keep America as white and as stupid as possible no that's the ticket for an author you gotta you gotta get the book banned you gotta get the book banned that's the only reason we talk about mark twain anyway because those books aren't good right mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh hard take that's a, yeah that's a take <laughs> okay a connecticut hot take in it's king hot, arthur's court my train, god train takes, okay <laughs> The only racist twain I love is Shania. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Lewis, what is your keep it this week? My keep it is to a certain type of tweet, but one that has reared its head again this week in regards to the Oscars. It was written by David Sirota, Oscar-nominated co-writer of Don't Look Up, which won exactly zero Oscars, which some people enjoy. His tweet was, my thoughts on the Oscar slap incident are that it's 70 degrees in Antarctica and what's left of the livable ecosystem is being destroyed. And so we should focus on that. Are you literally saying don't react to a slap you just watched by surprise on television? Don't say one thing about it. Start thinking about Antarctica immediately. Let's think about how like human brains work. If you can be confronted with one thing and still have convictions about anything else existing in the world. This reminds me of what uh, when Michael Jackson died, somebody I knew from college said something like, I can't believe people are talking about Michael Jackson when instead they could be talking about, I don't know, whatever roar was going on there. It's like you do realize that by bringing up one topic, you are not negating the existence of another topic. Mm -hmm. It's just the shallowest condescension possible, which is to say. 
you have one concern, but there are other concerns and therefore you're stupid. It's just like taking an easy chance to call people dumb when instead, if you really care about Antarctica, you don't have to bring up the Oscar slap. You can just talk about it and then maybe we'll retweet that, you know? So I, easy condescension in general is like a real pet peeve of mine. And especially from somebody who was probably jilted, his nomination didn't turn into a win. Also, did he go to the Oscars after party? Did he go to the Vanity Fair party? Because um, he really should have gone home to continue the work of, you know, <laughs> saving the polar ice caps. You know, you made right. your movie, which was to get the word out there. Now get back to work. Right. Get back to Antarctica, Ernest Shackleton, or whatever your effing journey is. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, just, Greta just, Thunberg was texting me about the slap. So shut up, David. Right. <laughs> She's like, I think it was faked. Yeah. Yeah. It's just people whose who, who's entire, entire public existence is predicated on being deterred and punchable at all times. It's like, yeah, we get it. Fucking Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like, okay, there are more, there are more important things to talk about. Nick, you know, Nikolai fucking Tesla, but we all watch this thing. And this is what we're talking about right now. That, again, it doesn't, doesn't mean that you can't have your fucking greenhouse effect ozone layer tweets off any other time you could get them off. But right now we don't give a shit. And Ira, what is your keep it? My keep it goes to, um, Maud Apatow's dad. Um, who oh, is right. determined? Oh, yes, yeah. Who is determined to embarrass her on the internet forever? During the show, after the slap, Judd Apatow saw black people being black and decided that once again he couldn't mind his own business and hopped on the internet to tweet. He could have killed him. That's pure, out of control rage and violence. They've heard a million jokes about them in the last three decades. They are not freshmen in the world of Hollywood and comedy. He lost his mind. First of all, your your first of all your reading of it and the text itself was giving eighties thriller movie trailer. Lots of gravitas. You you yeah. yeah, lots of gravitas right here. Just just had to yeah. It was very the movie Sea of Love. Or yeah, something. this is right. <laughs> I am so tired of Judd Apatow. <laughs> what possessed any of this tweet besides being kind of racist? I mean, he could have killed them is so vague. <laughs> Rage and violence. He lost his mind. This was like, and this wasn't even the insane people who we're not even going to address who were tweeting like, like that, like that um, doctor who had that viral tweet where she was like, if it had been Betty White on stage that he'd slap. <laughs> um, people love hypotheticals on the internet that have absolutely nothing to do with what actually just happened. But to suggest that that slap in that moment could have killed Chris Rock, that, you know, it was, it was King Kong marching up the Empire State Building <laughs> to rip Chris Rock apart was is wild and it just it reminds me that like judd apatow always has weird energy for black men you know we've talked about it on keep it like years ago but like throughout the entire like harvey weinstein and like woody allen thing it's like you of course get like a tweet from him or something but he was like every day blogging about bill cosby mm -hmm. 
like mm. daily blogging to the point where it's like, okay, Busy Phillips came out and said that like James Franco threw her to the ground on the set of your show, Freaks and Geeks, and you do nothing about it. And you all sort of laughed it off when she talked about it in this panel. But yet you're hopping on your phone every five seconds to talk about Bill Cosby. It's just very weird. Uh, and the fixation with Cosby in the height of like stuff going on with Woody Allen and Harvey Weinstein was just very like, okay, you're focused on like the black man who you're obsessed with right now. And then this tweet about Will Smith was like, I don't know. It felt like Joseph Conrad wrote it. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like what you were saying earlier um, in the show, it's like they're pretending like white on white violence doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we see it. We see, I, I, like I, I've seen it in front of me. I went to a Catholic school in middle school and I would see white on white violence. I would see white on white slurs. I didn't even know existed. You know, yes. Italians with slurs for Greeks and Greeks with slurs for Pol- I like, oh shit, this is a whole new world of slurs for me. I um, did not learn WAP until I went to an all white school, okay? And mm-hmm. my Catholic all boys high school had so like people calling like Italian students like that. And I was like, what is happening here? Yeah. Yeah. And so white on white balance is a thing. And so these people getting on you know, getting on Kyrie's Irving's internet to act all Pollyanna about all this shit. It just, it just is not, it's not, yeah, it's like, again, why are you doing this? Why, why, why are you pretending? Why are you perpetrating right now when we know that this isn't, this is, I mean, if you're a comedian, you know, Apatow grow up, grows up going to these comedy clubs. I'm sure he's seen fights. I'm sure he's seen people get smacked on stage before i mean he he's definitely he's probably been smacked like you don't come up through that world of stand-up and you know all these men being like hyper competitive and you know for 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 spots and for maybe Mm. movies and all that and not see these sorts of physical altercations maybe they don't lead to like actual like injury or or death but he has seen fights as an adult before he has seen people fighting on stage before you cannot grow up in that world and not see that uh damon thank you so much for being here with us today everyone should go and listen to stuck with damon young on spotify it is a crooked and gimlet joint and it's great thank you thank you thank you for having me on this (laughs) podcast um again this was a lot of fun um and yeah stuck with david young is available it's it's exclusive spotify so you can only listen to it on spotify but um please you know you get a chance check it out you know hopefully you know i i had the same legs that keep it as head that that's you know that's that's one of my goals is fingers crossed this podcast gets banned too yeah oh yeah yeah definitely definitely. ban ban my podcast yeah well on the plus side it's just stuck with damon young so you won't go through as many co-hosts as we have (laughs) (laughs) we're we're like solid gold up in here uh also thank you to judith light for being here uh and we will see you next week for more keep it Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. But I, Louis Fertel, do a good job too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin. And the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. 
Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.